Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Did you ever play Oregon Trail when you were a kid? Yeah, back on my old Apple II. Wasn't it weird that people were just, like, dropping dead from measles and diphtheria and things like that? Yeah, those things weren't around when I was that age. Right, we have vaccines for most of those diseases now. Yeah, but why do we only have to get vaccines for those once, but the flu shot we have to get every year? And why isn't there a vaccine for things like malaria? I don't know. Hey, I got a question about that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. I'm Sam. I'm Nate. And this is a podcast and video series where we talk about some of the research that goes on here at the Eberly College of Science at Penn State. Yeah, and on this episode, we traveled to the Millennium Science Complex to talk to some members of the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics about vaccines. We got a full house here, so let's just get right into it. All right, so we're here in the Millennium Science Complex on the Penn State University Park campus, and we're joined by Scott Lindner, who's an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, Matt Ferrari, an associate professor of biology and statistics, and Troy Sutton, who's an assistant professor of veterinary and biomedical sciences. So thanks for joining us, uh, Scott. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Scott Lindner. I'm an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. I think about the malaria parasite. Uh, it's a huge global uh, health burden even today. Uh, and because we don't have an effective licensed vaccine yet, uh, and the parasite is really clever and uh, finds ways around each drug that we've ever deployed, uh, it's still important to uh, find ways that we can uh, target it uh, therapeutically. So my group thinks about how this parasite transmits from humans to mosquitoes and back again. And then what are the weak points uh, that might be targetable? Great. Thanks. And Matt, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a quantitative epidemiologist. Um, so that means I use mathematics and statistics to try and come up with numbers, calculations, measures that can help us understand what the burden of diseases, so how much disease is out there in the world, and what the magnitude of interventions and changes are. So how, how much disease is out there right now? Uh, if we introduce a new drug or vaccine or what have you, right? How much will, uh, how much do we expect things to improve in the future? And did we achieve that expectation, right? And that might seem like a trivial thing. You might say, oh, you can just go out to the hospitals and count up how many sick people there are, right? Right. Well, even in the U.S., where there are electronic medical records, going out and doing that would be really hard and time-consuming. Right? But if you go across the world where you have lots of paper-based records and lots of people are getting sick in the home and not, not being seen by health systems, all of a sudden you can start to see the complexity of that problem. And I love that complexity and I do all kinds of stuff to try and figure out how to solve it. And Troy, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what it is that you do? So uh, I'm a virologist and my research focuses on the influenza virus or viruses. Um, and we basically do two things. Uh, I'm interested in, in two questions. One is how do viruses that live in animals transmit into humans and then transmit from human to human? And that's how we get a pandemic. So my lab is interested in that question. Uh, and then we're interested in making better flu vaccines. So uh, specifically, we try and engineer vaccines, engineer flu viruses so that they are weakened. They don't uh, cause disease, but they're, they induce a better immune response. So we're, we're trying to engineer a better flu vaccine. Uh, so Nate and I were talking a little bit about vaccines, uh, what they are, how they work. And I guess a way to get started is maybe you can tell us a little bit about what a vaccine is and how do they work. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to explain to you, I'm going to answer your question in the reverse order. Okay. I'm going to explain to you how they work 
in order to explain what they do. Right? So um, there are many different types of pathogens that can make you sick, um, bacteria, uh, parasites, viruses. And when you're exposed to one of these pathogens, uh, your body develops an immune response that seeks to remove it from your body. Uh, that immune response consists of what we call antibodies. These are proteins that, that coat that pathogen and sort of inactivate it. Uh, and then uh, there's what we call a cellular immune response, which is basically cells that are trained to recognize other cells in the body that are infected. And it, it, they target those cells for, for removal. And so uh, after you're exposed the first time, when you're exposed to a pathogen the second time, your body develops this really robust immune response and clears it very quickly. So is this, is this happening in the bloodstream? This happens in different parts of the body, okay. depending on where the pathogen is infecting you or, or, or growing. Right, so you, when you see a pathogen the second time, you already have these antibodies and these cells ready to go, and they develop this really robust response and they clear it very quickly. So a vaccine works by basically tricking your body into thinking it's being infected the first time. So that you develop this response, and then when you see it the second time, you, in, in real life, uh, you develop this really robust response and you're, you're protected from getting sick. What kind of impact does this have on public health, being, having access to vaccines? Um, yeah, well, as you can imagine, I mean, basically, it's, it, uh, it effectively creates a system in which, in which people are already practiced and their bodies are already practiced and trained at removing these these pathogens so you see a dramatic reduction in the level of infections the amount of infection that's out there the number of people that are carrying these these bugs viruses bacteria what have you that therefore reduces the ability of those people to transmit to anybody else right so not only are the vaccinated people protected but anybody else that they could transmit to is now protected because there's nobody to pass the bug on right so just those are the sort of basic principles of how, of, of, of how vaccines scale up and affect populations overall. Um, everybody always wants to know, well, what are the numbers associated with that, right? I mean, how many people are affected or hurt or, or saved by these things? Um, uh, actually, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really challenging question to answer, right? Because you're asking about how do you count up the number of things that didn't happen, right? right? Um, and, you know, that's actually a, it's a huge part of my research program is trying to figure out thoughtful and informed, well-informed, data-informed ways of trying to calculate that, right? So what we talk about is often in terms of lives saved, right? How many deaths were averted by vaccines? Uh, and the WHO uh, and a bunch of other partners who put in place what's called the Decade of Vaccines, which is a, a big effort to increase the amount of uh, vaccine and access to vaccines over the last decade from 2010 to 2020, right? they've estimated that in the first half of that, over 10 million children's lives have been saved just over the first five years, over 2010 to 2015. And the expectation is that over the second five years, that number is going to go up even more, partially because there are more children in the world, right? but also because all of those programs that were ramping up in the first five years are now going to see even more uh, benefit over the second half of that period. So this all sounds like good things. Why do some people choose to not vaccinate themselves or their kids? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, a really complicated question. And there are lots and lots of possible reasons that are out there, right? 
Um, I actually spend most of my time working in low and middle income countries where the primary uh, reason that people don't get vaccinated is because they don't have access to health care or health services in the first place. They live, they live in remote areas or they're far from uh, where vaccines can get to. Many vaccines require uh, uh, big infrastructure, cold, what we call the cold chain. So the vaccine has to stay tracked and cold and within a special temperature regime from production to uh, injection or, or delivery to a child. And in areas where road access is poor or electricity access is poor, right, it's hard to do that. And so there's only a small number of places where vaccines can even get to, and that limits the ability of people to access that. So globally, access and the inability to get to a vaccine is probably the biggest reason that people don't get vaccinated. Those aren't a problem here in the U.S., and we still have people who don't vaccinate their kids or don't get vaccinated. Yeah, that's right, of course. So, um, and and let's let's just let's just be clear. It is still a problem in the U.S. There are lots of people that don't have access to health care in the United States, both because of where they live geographically or because of economic limitations, right? So access is still an important part of the story in the United States. But there also are lots of other reasons that, that people uh, don't get vaccinated themselves or don't vaccinate their children, right? I mean, without a doubt, a vaccination is a medical intervention. Every medical intervention has side effects and, and extra things that can happen, right? As Troy mentioned, right, what you're doing is you're kind of tricking the body into stimulating, uh, into generating this protective immune response, right? Well, when your body is tricked into doing that, sometimes you, start, you, you exhibit some of the symptoms of a natural infection. Not nearly as bad, but things like uh, a slight fever might be associated with that. You might get a little bit of redness or a bump at the, at the site of the injection, right? Or, um, or a little bit of a rash or something, right? So those are really uh, benign side effects that can happen associated with that, but they, they can be quite frightening to a parent with a young child, right? So a lot of people are concerned about that. There are, in very rare cases, you know, more severe side effects. Some people uh, are allergic to components that, are, that go into vaccines, and if they haven't been exposed to them yet by that point in their life, they didn't know they were allergic to it, and you can have a more severe reaction, right? Those kinds of things can scare parents, and those parents tell other parents, and so you can, you can generate a lot of fear and confusion associated with that. So with any medical intervention, you have these challenges, right? That fear has been capitalized on by lots of other people to generate more significant uh, phenomena, what's referred to as the anti-vaccination movement, um, that, that has, has led to you know, this sort of big multiplying of an effect, right? And, and people avoiding vaccines for conceivably irrational reasons. So where does this anti-vax movement come from? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, uh, well, anti-vaccination sentiment and fear of vaccinations has existed since the first vaccine was, was developed. The original vaccine, the first vaccine, which was developed as smallpox. There's a lot, I mean, all of a sudden, this is a new medical intervention and people were really freaked out, right? The idea that you would take a healthy person and put a piece of, of, of an infectious agent into that person to protect them. I mean, that's... That's, that was blowing a lot of people's minds at the time, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't widespread, and people hadn't seen the benefit from it yet. So, so there's been fear of vaccination ever since vaccine, vaccination started. Right? The modern anti-vaccination movement has its roots in uh, a British doctor called Andrew Wakefield, who uh, was himself working on some novel vaccines and ultimately falsified uh, experimental data and published it in one of the most 
respected medical journals at the time, and actually still one of the most respected medical journals, and he published falsified data showing a connection between the current vaccines and autism. And that fear and the concern about that um, just really resonated with a lot of the population and it has spread and, and continued to spread and have been continued to be reinforced by um, people all over the place, especially some sort of high profile celebrities and things that have really kept this thing as part of this, pub, this sort of public zeitgeist. And despite the fact that this work has been completely debunked, this guy uh, Wakefield had his medical license revoked, the paper was revoked by the journal, all of that has been completely shown to be false. Um, however, once that idea was out there and started festering, it's unfortunately continued to circulate. And what that means is, even if it's relatively small percentages, right, small percentages of huge populations, right, actually mean that you have large numbers of children and even adults at some point, sometimes, that are unprotected from this. And those adults can then get sick, and those adults can then transmit onwards to others, right? And so you actually have this multiplicative effect when you even have relatively small numbers of people in the population that are unprotected. So if vaccines work by kind of tricking the immune system by giving pieces of a pathogen or something like that, like why don't they cause people to get sick? So so the the, the answer to that is more complicated than, than a straightforward answer, but vaccines are formulated in different ways, right? So the the... The, there are basically three major formulations. One is you, you grow a pathogen and then you kill it. And you do that with chemicals or with heat and you show that it's dead so it, it's not like that and then you give it to the body. So the, you're getting all of the different parts of it that look like a pathogen to the body but you are not actually getting the, the agent that can replicate. So you're getting all the parts of it and so that's why you can get this sort of this weak immune response but you're not actually really getting sick because you're not, or that's why you can get these weak symptoms like fever, soft fever, and that's why you're not getting sick. There are other forms of vaccines where you take that, that whole inactivated virus and you purify parts of it. So you're only giving one part of it. So that obviously isn't capable of making you sick. Or using uh, more modern techniques, we can actually just express one part of a pathogen and give that. Uh, the other form of vaccines is what we call live attenuated vaccines. This is where you've taken a pathogen and intentionally weakened it. So you've, you've made a pathogen that is no longer capable of making, is, that is, sorry, that is capable of infecting you, but no longer capable of making you sick. And so uh, those are very effective vaccines. They, they are used. Um, so basically, we take steps to make sure that they don't make you sick. And actually, I mean, just to, to follow up on that, one of the most famous and, and, and influential vaccines around the world has been uh, the oral polio vaccine, which was a attenuated polio virus. And the fact that it was live attenuated is part of why it's been so successful in the world. Because what happens is you give it to a child and that child, it replicates inside that child and in fact transmits to other children. It doesn't make you sick, but it transmits to other children and other children then effectively get vaccinated, right? through an infectious process, and, and especially in remote parts of the world and low-income parts of the world where access, getting vaccines to kids has been a real challenge, right? That, that mechanism of the vaccine has actually really amplified and, and, and increased the, the effect of that vaccine, broadly speaking. So what makes a vaccine effective? Uh, so there's actually several parts to making a vaccine effective. Um, so you need, you need to, to, your vaccine itself has to induce an immune response. So it has to be 
have the right mix of stuff to make you actually think you're being infected. Uh, and then, you know, I alluded to you need to induce antibodies, or your, your immune responses consist of antibodies and uh, specialized cells or a cellular immune response. You need to induce both those components. The, the added layer in there is that depending on what pathogen you're infected with and where it lives in the body, you're going to need either more antibodies or more of an antibody response or more of a cell-based response. So if you're infected with a pathogen that lives outside of cells, you're going to need antibodies. Antibodies exist in cavities, they exist in the blood, they exist at your mucosal surfaces, they coat the pathogen and prevent it from infecting uh, other cells, or they target it for removal. If you have something like a virus that lives inside a cell, you're going to need this cellular immune response where these cells are trained to recognize other cells that are infected and kill them. So you need an immune response, you need the right balance of antibodies and cells, uh, and then the other thing you need is you need it in the right place. So if you have a respiratory infection, you need an immune response in your respiratory cavities. If you're going to be exposed by something that lives in the blood, you need an immune response in the blood. So you need an immune response, it needs to be the right balance, and it needs to be in the right place. And then once you've developed an effective vaccine, gone through all this efforts, uh, you know, put in all the money, uh, and identified the best way to make these vaccines, um, you need to educate the people that should receive them. Uh, you know, we talked about the anti-vax uh, movement. It's important that they understand, you know, what a vaccine is and what it isn't. You know, part of what we're, you know, saying here is hopefully to inspire people to be well-informed. Uh, but yeah, but uh, going out into uh, uh, low- and middle-income uh, countries uh, and uh, hopefully partnering with people from that country to educate um, their, their uh, you know, common countrymen uh, about the benefits, uh, educating against misinformation uh, so that uh, people are willing to get the vaccine is, is also another major component. Uh, and then once you have buy-in from the community, uh, you know, as Matt was saying, uh, getting it distributed, if it has to stay cold, keeping it cold. Uh, but then if you need uh, multiple doses, uh, making sure that people come back. Uh, it's hard enough, you know, just remembering to take a multivitamin every day, uh, let alone, uh, you know, telling somebody, oh, come back in three months um, and making sure that they come back on time, right? Right. And, and you need a, a production system, a supply chain. You need companies that are willing to, to manufacture this vaccine at the scale that you need, right? Uh, you need you know, some of these vaccines, we're vaccinating almost every child that's born across the, across the planet. So we need massive, massive quantities of these things. So you need huge infrastructure to produce these things. You have to have negotiated pricing so that the, so that the prices don't get too high for people to not be able to afford them, but also not get too low that the companies aren't willing to, to produce them, right? And so you have to find a balance between them. And there's actually, outside of the biology of vaccines, there's a huge public health infrastructure that's, that's trying to find that balance and, and work out that negotiation, both between countries that are gonna be purchasing vaccine, uh, NGOs that are gonna help support financing of this thing, and the companies themselves that are producing these things. So vaccines are safe, they're effective. Why don't we have vaccines kind of for everything? Yeah, so I mean, each bug is different. Um, so we need to put in the, uh, the legwork to understand uh, what are its vulnerabilities? What can we target? What, uh, what is useful um, when we're generating an immune response? Uh, but ultimately, there, there's some uh, pathogens, viruses, uh, bacteria, uh, parasites as well, that uh, some change very slowly, um, some change very quickly. So the vaccines that we already have for uh, things like flu uh, can be effective for a short period of time, but then the, the flu virus will change quickly. Um, so we need to adjust what vaccine we're deploying. 
uh, versus other things like measles uh, change slowly. So the vaccine that we get as a kid uh, can uh, help us throughout our life. Uh, so yeah, so ultimately it comes down to uh, uh, you know, a race between uh, the pathogen and our immune system uh, to know what we need to do. Um, and uh, best of all or worst of all, depending on how you look at it, uh, we need to know how to uh, customize that for each uh, pathogen that's relevant to us. So were vaccines always safe? So that, that's a good question, and it's part of where some of these myths about vaccination originated from. So, so you know, vaccines were first developed in the late 1700s, and, and very early on, people didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have modern safety biomedical practice, by you know, the research facilities, and, and there were no laws around it. So people were being vaccinated with uh, live virus from other people, with all sorts of things. So early on, they weren't, not, weren't that safe. Some of the better scientists, uh, Edward Jenner, who invented the smallpox vaccine, they did it in a more controlled fashion, um, but they still did things that by today's standards were very risky. Um, so as the vaccine field has developed and as biomedical research has developed, we've gotten better at our quality control, ensuring viruses are inactivated, um, and now today's modern vaccines are very safe. Uh, and the level of testing to develop a new vaccine is incredibly rigorous. So uh, modern vaccines, if you come up with a new vaccine, the first thing that's done is they're put in healthy adults to make sure that they don't make anybody sick in a small group. And then that's scaled up to another study where there are more adults uh, that show that the first and foremost, they don't make you sick. They don't cause any adverse, you know, really terrible side effects. Uh, and then from there on, they start getting into these larger, really expensive studies. And in all of these studies, even when you're at you know, hundreds of thousands of people, the reporting requirements for side effects and the reporting requirements to, to license a vaccine uh, on the side of a company are very exhaustive and they're very thoroughly vetted. So. Um, the history of vaccines early on, they were not incredibly safe, but today's modern vaccines are very safe. So the, the kind of anti-vaccination movement is in some ways irrational, as, as you mentioned. Like, how can we kind of deal with that fear and uh, get people to over, overcome it, I guess? Yeah. Um, the simple answer, I think, is education. But education, you know, is is a complicated phenomenon and it's a complicated process. So this whole thing is is really hard. Frankly, fear is not irrational, right? The the fact that parents are are fearful for their children and worry about their children, that's not in and of itself irrational, right? And uh, and we have these um, you know the, there are fundamental challenges about when vaccines are delivered to children. We, we want to vaccinate children early on in their lives so that they're protected as soon as possible, right? Because, especially because some of these infections, some of these diseases are disproportionately severe in the youngest kids. So we want to get them early on, right? That's also a time when there are lots of developmental changes happening in those kids. And you're just starting to see all the things that those kids can do. They're starting to walk for the first time and talk for the first time and exhibit all of these new behaviors and characteristics that you've never seen before. And so those are also the first times where you can notice that there are developmental disabilities, that there are, that, that, that something is not quote unquote normal, uh, you know, in, in whatever the conventional characterization of normal is. And so that unfortunate timing of when vaccines are given and when you start to notice symptoms of, uh, of these developmental challenges basically means that every child is an experiment without a replicate. And it's, it's fundamentally impossible to, to really, to fully disentangle that. 
And that's the, that's the communications challenge that the scientific community has, right? Because, uh, you know, we can show, and we have shown throughout multiple, multiple studies, that there is no causative link, that there's just no, you know, physiological, biological link that says, if I put this compound in, a, in an individual, then this outcome will happen, right? That, that, that this, this deleterious or, or negative outcome will happen. We've shown that many, many, many times, right? But there's this fundamental challenge of timing, right? That they just happen because of the way we do things to happen in that sequence. And it sure looks like to a parent, right? That, 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 that one thing causes the other. And, and so unfortunately, we, we, we need to train parents to think like scientists. And you know, the idea of giving every parent a PhD in, in, in epidemiology is, 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 you know, is, is far too absurd, right? But we need to, you know, the, the level of education that's, that's necessary to process that, right, is quite high level. And, and trying to develop concise communication methods that can communicate really complicated ideas to parents is something that we haven't quite mastered yet, right? And it's something that only in the last few years we've really recognized how severe that phenomenon can be and how severe that challenge can be in limiting our ability to control these diseases. And I think you know, part of the, the political spectrum with the anti-vaccine movement coming up, um, you know, early on there was this real butting heads and I think the, the scientific community has had to change and acknowledge that these fears are, are there and acknowledge that the, the dialogue has to happen. You have to acknowledge the fear and recognize that these are legitimate concerns of parents. Um, and so the scientific community and the medical community has had to change their approach um, as well, which has been a certain part of addressing that, that fear. Um, so that, that is a piece that, that is changing as well. That's right. And we... And so we have to take on, we have to educate ourselves as well as scientists. We have to learn new skills. We have to learn to be communicators, not just scientists, right? Just doing the study isn't enough. We have to take that information and get that to parents so that they can really understand what, what it is that we know. And just like the anti-vaccination uh, uh, campaign has spread from parent to parent, uh, we as scientists that also happen to be parents can be a part of the, the counter to that. Um, so we can say, you know, I'm a scientist. I, I know how vaccines work. Uh, I vaccinate my kid. It's safe, right? Um, so we could also be a part of the solution, you know, in that way for those that, uh, you know, are, are both scientists with PhDs and parents. And I, and I think there's another important part to vaccination is that a vaccine's goal is to basically render itself useless. Mm. If you vaccinate to a level where these diseases are no longer prevalent, people no longer see them as a threat. Right? So if you have the option between giving your child measles or giving your, if you're giving your child a vaccine that prevents measles or having your child get measles, the, you're going to go for the vaccine. But if you never see a child getting measles, you're not going to see the need to justify vaccinating your child, especially if there are these myths being propagated about vaccination being harmful. So, so that is a piece that, that we really need to educate on um, and, and really explain that that these vaccines or these viruses, these pathogens still exist and still cause disease and have a public health burden. And we see examples of that in the news with measles outbreaks happening in the U.S. Um, and other things like that. So, so, so we have to remember that a vaccine's goal is to, to be so good it's no longer needed. So why do I have to get a flu vaccine every year? Yeah, so uh, so flu is a tricky virus. Uh, flu viruses, uh, as uh, Scott alluded to, mutate very quickly. Right? So in response to... Um, 
having people that are, have immunity against them, the flu virus changes quickly and it develops so that it actually escapes that immunity. So within a year or within every one to three years, that virus is substantially different than the previous virus and is actually evolved to escape uh, the immunity that you have. Uh, the answer is a bit more complicated than that. There are, uh, most flu vaccines have four different flu viruses in them. And so the, each flu virus in a given year, a different strain predominates. So you want to get vaccinated to make sure you're covered against that strain. And as well, all four of those strains are also changing. So it's sort of a two-layered uh, problem. So does the flu vaccine actually, it works just like all the other vaccines in that it protects you for life against the old flu. Uh, just that there might be a new flu. <laughs> there just the next year is going to be a new um, flu. So, so flu vaccination, as we learn more and more about it, your predominant immune response to flu vaccine is against the first flu virus you ever saw. Mm -hmm. So you, you, when, you, when you see a flu virus, the majority of your antibodies and cells are actually against a virus that, is, that you saw the first time. And only a subset are against the new virus that you got right. vaccinated against. So the, the theory is, is that you have lifelong immunity against the virus, uh, that you, viruses that you've been exposed to, the viruses keep changing, and you do continue to mount that lifelong immunity, but you have to get sort of updated yeah. um, against that first, that, those newer viruses. What about something like malaria that's such a huge kind of global health issue and it's attracted the attention of Bill and Melinda Gates and things like that? Why haven't we developed a vaccine for that? Yeah, so uh, uh, I'm a parasitologist, so I, I have my bias, I have my preference of you know, what I like to work on. Uh, parasites uh, are uh, eukaryotes, so they're more complicated, uh, they're bigger, they encode more things on their own uh, than, say, a virus, uh, which encodes a handful of different proteins that you need to worry about. Uh, so uh, the malaria parasite is, is caused by plasmodium, and the plasmodium that you'll find in Africa or in Southeast Asia or in South America is, is wildly different. Uh, so uh, developing a vaccine uh, could uh, work, and you know, at least in clinical trials, it's working well uh, against the one type that the vaccine was based upon, right? Uh, but if you try to use that vaccine uh, and try to protect against uh, you know, uh, geographically different uh, parasites, it's not going to work very well. Okay, so, uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is it's a really clever beast. Um, so there have been uh, efforts to make a vaccine. GlaxoSmithKline, uh, I think, put in half a billion dollars so far, along with you know, other folks contributing uh, to make this vaccine called RTSS, which uh, uh, WHO has uh, put its stamp of approval on, and it's going out to three different countries right now in, in Africa. Uh, it's moderately protective, maybe 40% protective. Maybe you won't get malaria right now, um, but it'll uh, delay when you uh, get that next uh, malaria infection. Uh, that's not great. You know, everybody has you know, much higher goals, uh, and, uh, but getting to that, that uh, point is challenging. Uh, so Troy was mentioning uh, that you can use parts of uh, the pathogen, like some proteins, or you can use the whole pathogen. Uh, and when it comes to uh, the malaria parasite, if you just give some proteins, it's kind of protective. That's what the RTSS vaccine is all about, using a few proteins, um, in fact, just one protein uh, from one uh, part of its life cycle, and it provides some protection. Uh, there's new vaccines on the horizon that are really encouraging and exciting um, that are these live attenuated uh, pathogens, uh, parasites, where you weaken them, they can still infect you, they don't cause any symptoms, uh, but then they arrest, they die, and then your immune system can detect everything in there 
and provide really excellent uh, uh, coverage from an immune response uh, standpoint. Uh, the issue, though, is as, as it stands right now, uh, the vaccine either has to be delivered um, by a mosquito. <laughs> So you're not actually using a, a pill or an injectable. You know, in the past few years, we uh, as a field understood that if you uh, inject it uh, into a vein, that also works. But if you then think about going out into the fields, mm -hmm. um, you need to have qualified people that know how to do this. Um, so these are new barriers, new, new hurdles that um, are being overcome. Uh, but, you know, factor into how on earth are we going to uh, deploy a vaccine when we have an effective one. Okay, so what do you think it's going to take to eradicate malaria? Yeah, so uh, bottom line, a lot of cooperation. So we're gonna need uh, a, a direct vaccine like what I was describing previously, something that will protect me. If I get a vaccine, it's gonna protect me. Uh, we're also, I think, gonna need an altruistic vaccine where if I get a vaccine, it's not gonna protect me, but it's gonna make sure that mosquitoes that bite me if I'm infected can't become infected and then pass it on to you, right? Um, so those two things are, are gonna be really important. Uh, as we said before, um, education, uh, getting out there and, and informing people as to, you know, what we're trying to do, um, you know, how this direct vaccine is going to help me, um, how this altruistic vaccine is going to help, you know, your neighbors. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, you know, the, the distribution network, how do we get it out to the people that need it? And all these are, are big uh, hurdles that we're overcoming. Yeah. And for a problem as complicated as malaria, even so, the, a vaccine is going to be one part of a much larger systematic approach to, or system-wide approach to getting rid of this thing. So conventional things like distributing bed nets so that people don't get bit while they're sleeping, um, uh, you know, some insecticides and, and you know, things that will, kill mis that will kill mosquitoes, right? Things like that also, uh, and, and general education as well. Right? All of those things can work then to amplify the impact that a novel therapeutic or a novel uh, vaccine can have. Yeah. And then finally, cooperation uh, across geopolitical lines. Mosquitoes you know, don't care about uh, an imaginary line on a map, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're gonna fly across. So neighboring countries need to uh, participate, uh, uh, understand that working together is in everybody's benefit. Um, and of course, anything uh, political is a huge challenge, um, and it's going to require a lot of uh, organization, a lot of effort from NGOs and uh, uh, organizations like Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, World Health Organization, et cetera. So given all this, what do you think is the kind of outlook for the future of developing new vaccines and, and making sure that the vaccines that we have are you know, properly deployed and, and, and get to as much of the globe as possible? With respect to the malaria vaccine, uh, the outlook's great. Uh, there's really uh, exciting, encouraging uh, new vaccine candidates that are right on the horizon. Uh, we think that they're going to be uh, highly uh, protective. Uh, but again, you know, if you're making a vaccine from one uh, parasite that comes from Africa, is it going to protect very well against parasites that are in Southeast Asia or South America? So there's going to be a lot more effort that's needed uh, to make uh, these multi-strain vaccines. And we're already on it. So people in my field are, are already appreciating that this is the, the next major milestone, and this is where they're heading. Um, so within our lifetimes, um, you know, that's, that's what I anticipate will happen, that we'll have an effective malaria vaccine. Honestly, over the short term, I think the biggest and most exciting developments are boring industrial operational things, right? How do you get it out there? How do you improve supply chains? How do you improve the delivery? Changing from needle-based vaccines to Vaccine, vaccines that effectively work like a Band-Aid that you can put on the skin, right? Those, th those vaccines are actually, those d products are actually in development. I've held them in my hands now. Getting them to scale 
where you can where you can deploy them to hundreds of millions of people that's a really hard problem but i think those are solvable problems and once we can get those uh dealt with then we can take we can benefit from all the existing vaccines that have saved lots of lots of lives in places with good access and get that out to the rest of the world that's been missing it so those are short, those are some of the real short-term benefits that you can have with vaccines right there's a really interesting long-term horizon view of vaccines as, as troy mentioned Vaccines, really what they do is they trick your body into protecting itself without ever seeing a given disease, right? And that's, I mean, that's almost magical that that happens and that works. And there's some really exciting research being done in all kinds of fields, even things like cancer, where people are trying to harness that concept of vaccines, basically training the body to be better at protecting itself from various different kinds of diseases. Those are the real sort of long horizon over multiple decades kind of moonshot things that vaccines could do in the future, right? It's going to take a lot of research and a lot of time to get there. But I think this concept is really, really powerful and, uh, and, and has a lot of potential. So I would, I would mirror that, that I think, I think the future of vaccination is very bright. And I think uh, the, the field of vaccinology is, is very optimistic. Companies are putting a lot more money into these vaccines. There was a period where they were scaling back. Now they're they're full tilt into it. Um, and, and like you alluded, we're, there's cancer vaccines on the horizon. Uh, so there are lots of new applications. Uh, in my own field, uh, in flu vaccination, uh, we, we recognize the vaccine isn't perfect. It isn't totally effective. And the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has made it part of their goal is to make a better flu vaccine that is more effective, protects you against more strains, and maybe even protects you against pandemics so that you have this pie-in-the-sky vaccine that would be protective. So, so you know, the, the, the funding bodies and the, the companies are looking at vaccination as a future, as a, as a, and, and I think the future is very bright. And, and, and obviously the impact on public health is, is huge. That's fantastic. It's a great way to end, I think. So thank you all for joining us. That was cool. Yeah, I never realized that there's such an infrastructure needed to get these vaccines, you know, sent around the world. And I thought they made a really good point when they talked about how education and communication are going to be really vital in making sure that people understand how important vaccinations are. So if you want to learn more about any of the research that we talked about today, we'll have links in the show notes below. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. If you haven't already, please check out our previous episodes. You can find them wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. All right, Mom. It's time for bed, kids. Just one more round. Right. 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 I don't think if we stopped and rest that it cured anybody. Like, was there a doctor in your caravan? Or are you just literally stopping and resting? Oh, the measles went away. Yeah, but the whole six people that listen to this probably know okay. what Oregon Trail is. One second to compose myself or something. Let's start recording for real. Mom! I just now imagine every time I utter something stupid, <laughs> but it's in the pot. We had a full house in this episode, and then Danny Tanner comes in. Cut it out. Not only that viruses are safe, but you know how important they are. You said viruses are safe. Podcast and video series where we talk a lot about... Talk a little about? Talk a little about? <laughs> little about. <laughs> oh, now we're mumble rappers. This is a podcast and video series where we talk about... My God. <laughs> hey, Sam, you messed up. <laughs>